the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back to Signposts. Thank you for joining us today on this nice Saturday afternoon. And this first half hour, we've been talking about... We've been talking about our soul searching. Our we've been on a bit of a hiatus, going back and forth. And uh, my co-host, my dad, William Boylan, and myself, Andrew Boylan, we've been crossing paths all summer long, um, traveling this way and that for himself, especially. Um, but as we um, look ahead to what we are looking ahead towards the fall and what we. It's not a new year, but it feels like it in many ways. We've been soul searching about signposts and what it is and what, what we want to do with it as we go forward. And um, in that, we've been talking about the ministry and looking at what it means to have a 50-year ministry in a church and what that can bring to the table for young pastors, young Christians, young churches in transition. Um, there's a wealth of things that you've seen over the years, dad, um, that I've seen over the years through, through your ministry, but, um, that have always fascinated me. I always have questions. I mean, I think about it myself when I think about signposts, we were talking, touched on this a little bit in the first half hour, but this entire show, this entire endeavor has come, has been created by God. It can't have come any other way. We didn't ask for it. We weren't looking for it. You had been on the radio here for 25 years, but the, idea of having a show like of this style you've you have a couple of different shows you have a you have your sermon series on sunday mornings and you have a history show that's very specifically history orientated um but not a talk show format we had never looked at and i certainly hadn't been and i i mean i often write about this in in my writing and my bio for myself when i go and talk and do different um engagements that as a son of a minister, there was, uh, and as the firstborn son, we talked a lot over the years of me coming into the ministry, and I had never felt called to the ministry per se, or the ministry in a church setting necessarily. And as a pastor, let's say, I definitely had felt called to a lot of things, and I think um, had um, spent time over the years on things. But then this happened, and 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 I've been looking at it and soul searching, and so. I want to go back to where we had left off with God pulling the rug out from under you. But in that, I just wanted to to reintroduce the topic of what we've been talking about this Sunday for anybody who's joining us this afternoon after the break that we've been talking about what we envision Signpost to be has been part history and part insights into growing up in a church and building a ministry, uh, building a 50-year ministry that my dad built, a 25-year ministry on the radio. There's outlets that we've been working on, books and things about that, and we're trying to articulate that message and understand what that is. And um, and in that, let's delve into what you were talking about going into the break, which was how God sort of pulled the rug out from under you when you before you became a Christian or, or in order to make you into a Christian. Yeah. It's a 
it's a fact that when I was in the Army, uh, I thought everything was manageable. I was a pretty good soldier. I did what was commanded of me, and uh, I was well accepted. I had a great job in the Army. I was really out of my element in the sense. No, not out of my element. I was over my head in a real sense, although— uh, I uh, succeeded in in my MOS, my military occupational specialty. I trained mostly West Germans in our guided missile systems. And uh, it, it was really a very uh, upbeat and rewarding experience being in the military. But I wasn't a military man. I did not want to stay in the military. I wasn't going to make a career of it. But I was a patriot, and I felt I should serve my country. I wanted to serve my country. I'm of the age when uh, I was— a, youngster, six-year-old, uh, the the men, mostly men then, some women, but mostly men were coming back from World War II. Mm-hmm. And I was hearing all the talk about what they had faced in Germany and in Japan and in the war. It made a deep impression on me. And then I was about 11 when the Korean War broke out. And again, the young men in town were signing up and going off to war. And uh, and it was a good thing. They were, they were going there to save the world for democracy. Mm-hmm. That was one of the big statements. And all of that that was working in my life. Naturally, we're all shaped by our circumstances as well as a lot of other things. And so when I joined the Army, there was no choice, really. We had the draft. And when you were 18, you signed up for the draft. And you were either drafted, you waited till they did draft you, and then you had two years. They did with you what they wanted. Uh, then you had three more years uh, of active reserve and then three more years of inactive reserve. And that was your eight-year obligation when I was a high school mm-hmm. graduate. But I decided, uh, since they wanted to or offered to train you in your own choice of uh, occupations, uh, well, I'll give them an extra year and I'll get trained. So I went in for three years instead mm-hmm. of two, uh, signed up for missiles, and that's what I spent my active duty doing. Uh, and I was ready to get out. I by now had matured a little, and I, I at high school level, I wasn't interested in college. Now I was very interested in college because I realized how important it was in, the, in my future. And so I had made arrangements to enter a college or university at that time, and I was only days from discharge when the rug got pulled out from under me, and that's what happened. Mm. Uh, uh, President Kennedy pulled it out. Yeah, We never met, by the way. Uh, he didn't know he pulled it out. <laughs> he knew he pulled the rug out from a lot of us, and I, he didn't know I was standing on it. <laughs> but I knew, and the reason was they were building a wall in Germany, a Berlin Wall, and the uh, Pentagon did not know what that really meant. Was it the beginning of World War III? Uh, it was enough unknown that they didn't want to let us out of the army and then have to call us back. So they just extended our uh, term in the army. Ah, yeah. And uh, the— uh, Yeah. I, well, I know. I mean, I remember these stories um, about the your days in at Fort Bliss in Texas and um, how the— how the army, how you ended up staying in and then go fast forwarding that that was really your, where your conversion took place. Oh yeah. Because at this moment, right after Kennedy kept you there for another year, you were ready. You were going to Texas Western. You had a football scholarship. You were going to make some, um, you were going to get paid to go to school and you ended up losing everything. Really? You You lost your scholarship. You lost your opportunity to go to that school and you were back in the army for another year against your choice, and you were not happy about it, and, yeah, you, uh, as most a lot of people might not be. You've just described the rug. It got pulled off money. Right. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and so what, what I did was what um, 
uh, red-blooded sinner does, and uh, that was when I didn't quite know yet that God was doing all the good in my life. I thought there was a lot that I say I was contributing, and I found out it wasn't much. And when the true push came to shove, uh, what really was simmering down in my spirit was the was the desire for revenge. Mm. You had done something awful to me, taking a year away from my life. Now. At this age, it wouldn't seem so much. But when you're 20 years old, a year's a long time. Mm-hmm. And I had lost a year. I'd lost the opportunity to college while well, university. Uh, I have another year in the service, which wasn't something I was looking forward to. And I guess my way of uh, taking revenge was about as stupid as you can get. And, and, and after it happened, humiliating. Because I was brought up, as I started to say, uh, in a patriarch time. And, mm-hmm. and I... And I Loved the country, and, and and I respected my family, and I had and two aunts that served in World War Two. One was a wave, one was a whack. I mean, I had all this influence, right? And here I went out, and I slept on God. The last thing you should ever do, most most awful thing you can think about, uh, leaving something or someone unguarded. Right? Uh, uh, you know, I was on watch, and I failed as a watchman. Mm-hmm. I hoped against hope. And it didn't prove true. I hope that the officer today may not have turned me in. But I found out to my chagrin that he did indeed turn me in because in the morning when I was laying in my bunk waiting for my next tour of uh, duty on the post, the officer of the day, well, rather really the charge of quarters, came out and said, Boylan, report to the battalion commander. The battalion commander had not been much interested in me for three years. Mm. <laughs> and I thought, that's not a good sign. <laughs> Talk about signposts. Yeah. <laughs> that is not a good sign. I reported. I had to. I went before the sergeant major of the command. I stood in front of his desk ready to be sent into the battalion commander. Uh, he didn't look at me. Uh, he was reading the report of the officer a day. He looked up and looked me straight in the eye. Here's a man who was in probably his close to his 20 years in the service. He may have fought and he may have been one of the ones on Normandy. I don't know. But he was older. He was in long enough to have fought at Normandy and Hamburger Hill in Korea. And he, he was a veteran and he was a battle hardened veteran. And he had no sympathy, I can tell you, for sleeping gods. Mm hmm. And so I expected the worst that could possibly happen to me. I really thought, even on my way over to report to the uh, the commander, that I might end up in Leavenworth Prison, mm-hmm. and I might end up there for the rest of my life, for all I knew. And I was pretty much petrified. Mm-hmm. Well, he looked up at me, and I stood there as best I could. My knees were knocking. Uh, I was having a hard time standing up straight, and he said something to me I will never forget. He first said, is this true? And I knew better, having been in for almost three years, to give him a, give him my uh, excuses. He was not interested in my excuses. He was interested in yes or no. And I said, yes, Sergeant. I was really ready to go, as I say, into the next room where I expected the commander and two MPs to be to take me away. Mm-hmm. But he didn't do that. He said, he looked me right in the eye and he said, I want you to get out of here and I never want to see you again. Mm-hmm. Well, now I didn't. I knew what to do. I got out of there. <laughs> no, I wasn't arguing, but I was stunned. And when I left, closed his door across the corridor, and went out the next door to the steps of battalion headquarters. That was when light shined into my life. A voice I heard, 
I don't know if I don't know. <laughs> I don't. I can't analyze it. Mm-hmm. I heard it. It was in me. It came in me. Uh, it wasn't mystical. It was. A, it was words. I heard them. It said, "You asked me, and I just answered you." And accompanying those words was the greatest sense of peace, relief. And it wasn't just relief because I wasn't going to prison. There was something deeper than that. It was this was really deeper. This was uh, well, I knew later because I studied the Bible and I learned about the faith and I, I made some progress. But what what happened to me? As I say, as I learned later on, is I had become a new human being on that steps. Mm. I had become, it was a new birthday, literally. Uh, it was a new me standing there. And I, my attitudes changed. They, and I didn't change them. They were changed for me. I, I, uh, something came into my life that transformed me. Mm. And uh, the reason for telling us, and I'm glad you brought this whole area up, Andrew, is because I was led by signs. Mm. I don't think initially I was even aware enough to, 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 to put the story together. But boy, as I got older and looked back as a Christian, oh my goodness, the Lord has really taken somebody who needs to be held by the hand and guided for those first few years. That's what he did to me. He, mm. he guided me. And in specific ways, in the light of what he had really planned for my life. You know, it says in Jeremiah, I know the plans I have for you. Mm. Plans to do good and not to do evil. Mm. Plans for a future and a hope. Well, I didn't know that verse existed. Right. But later on, it became a very meaningful verse to me because as I walked away from that battalion headquarters building, uh, not only was I different, but things began to happen to me. First of all, I got out of the Army. Six months, not a year, but the Pentagon finally figured out that the Berlin Wall was not to start a war, it was to keep people in. And so it changed their whole decision-making process, and they began to let us out. Mm. But what happened to me was that uh, I'm I'm still full of this euphoria. I mean, I, I can't explain the joy and the wonder and the peace that just flooded into me. Mm. And, and it wasn't, uh, to my credit, and I knew it, I just wanted everybody, supposedly on earth, but certainly everybody in America, and particularly everybody in New England, absolutely people in my hometown, mm. to have the same experience. So... One day I was walking my father's dog. I had just been out of the army maybe a week or two. And I stopped on Town Hill in Ipswich and I prayed for the town. I just prayed. And, and that was what it was. Very naive, very childlike in a way. I just said, oh, Lord, give everybody in town this experience. So wonderful. And I, I prayed very freely. But the word just came easily. Six months later, I was assigned a... a homework assignment in a college. I joined. I went to a college. I went to Gordon College. I was assigned a piece from Jonathan Edwards, The Great Awakeners Journal. I was just finding out there had been a Great Awakening and there had been a Jonathan Edwards. I really knew nothing, Andrew. Yeah. And uh, here were my words on Town Hill and Jonathan Edwards' journal. Mm. Now, again, at the time, it was just flabbergasting. My hair went up. I didn't make a lot of it, but I didn't know that mm. God was going to call me into a role to play for him in a pulpit where he wanted his words in my mouth and not mine. Mm. 
That's interesting. No, I know. I've, you've mentioned that, and it's always been fascinating. And another thing you'd mentioned in the first half hour, and as you were talking, and you used some, you described um, yourself as a pastor in the early days, or even in general, of you know holding somebody's hand, stopping them from crossing the street when they shouldn't. Like you use a lot of childlike imagery, a lot of parent-child imagery. Yeah. And I was thinking about you when you started at Byfield, you were still a young Christian. And so were the people at Byfield at that time. It was a dead church and you were, and new people were coming in and new people were getting introduced. And I was wondering if you thought about that, what it is like to minister to people as you're growing yourself. I mean, we all grow, but there's a big difference between where you are today, 50 years after that ministry began and when you were starting. And there's a big difference between some of the early men who came to that church and men that I know now today who are still going and are where you are now today also. So it's interesting to to walk that path with people all the way. And I mean, I know it's out of the blue and I know it's a little off of what we were talking about, but it's something that I was thinking about. And I think in keeping in the next stage of what you were talking about, you were talking about God pulling the rug under you and then rebuilding you and putting words in your mouth so that you would know how to communicate to people and to spread his word to them, the next stage would be that sort of toddler stage of raising a church. And do you have thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, let's start, let's jump right off from that idea of words in the mouth, because what it really did for me, and of course, we're talking 1962 when I had that experience of of uh, praying to the Lord in Jonathan Edwards' words without knowing I was doing it, right? but uh, but being shown that I was, and it's 1969 when I began to preach at Byfield, mm. seven years later. Right. But you see, in those years, and as I thought about it and put two and two together, and got the bigger picture, I, I realized that if you, Lord, wanted to do something with my, with my life and you decided to do it through putting words in my mouth, and now you've called me to go to a place where words are my business, right? I'm in a pulpit, I have words, then why don't I take this book full of words that come from you right, and, and, and get those in my mouth? Yeah. Now, I don't mean just read the Bible to people, but but I never varied and I never moved away from the idea that uh, I had a great idea and I'd like to communicate it to you, my congregation here. Uh, I had a book full of greatest ideas, mm. and I tried to illustrate them, apply them, illuminate them, whatever you want to say. Right. Uh, that's what I used my mouth for. And the first thing God did, and it might be something that we could, uh, we don't, you know, time flies on us, uh, but mm-hmm. it might be something you want to talk about for a few minutes. The very first thing that happened to me at Byfield, my, my, my ministry, by the way, and I say this for the listening audience, my ministry broke down into seven discernible seven-year periods. Mm. I thought that was very interesting. Now, again, that certainly takes uh, looking back and remembering because when you're going through it, you don't know what's ahead of you or (laughs) any of these things. But as I look back uh, and that infant period, and it's a good way to put it, that period of infancy when when it wasn't infants that we were dealing with. I was a 29-year-old when I went as far as uh, my age. And the Young families I was uh, were coming to the church, and the young businessmen and and uh, executives and all of that uh, were not 
children. Right. But I know what you meant, and that was true. Spiritually speaking, they was right. uh, they were starting. Yeah. They were starting. I mean, I, yeah. And and so what the Lord did, and maybe when we come next week, it might be a topic to really pursue in, in depth. But what mm. the Lord did was what he did with Ezekiel. Mm. Now, remember, I said earlier, and I don't know if I finished that, but as I was called one night reading the Bible for the first time, and I came upon Ezekiel three seventeen, And the words were, Son of man, I have called you to be a watchman for the house of Israel. Now, isn't that the grace of God, and isn't this God's strength? Because I had proven myself an absolute failure at watching. And, and I suppose that if I were God and I were dealing with somebody like me and I wanted to use them as a watchman, it might be wise to show them what's going to happen if you do it in your own strength. Mm. <laughs> when I was watching these missiles in my own strength, I failed. Right. So I learned a lesson. If I'm going to be a watchman for the house of Israel, I better be reliant on God. And, yep. and in a very real way, not just in a, mm-hmm. not just talking about it, but really so. Mm. Then... Okay, so I I really did from the beginning proclaim the word of God. I I studied it, and it were, my sermons were based on the scriptures and not on good ideas that I might have concocted on my own. And the Lord took those words and He put them into practice. He acted them out. He He made them happen. That's a better way to put it. And for the first seven years. We had New Testament-level miracles in the life of the church, Mm. and they were frequent. I've said once a week, and maybe I'm just talking about the way I felt about them because I don't have it on paper, but I I can guarantee that hardly two weeks went by without another one happening. Mm. And that almost bombardment of miraculous activity changed that church. Mm. It was it was the change agent. Yep. Now, what I suggested, and I know we're coming close in a few minutes, you know, we'll be out of time to talk uh, together and to our audience. But uh, but I I think it it would be uh, a good follow up to to look back at Ezekiel and to see how Ezekiel was told. If anybody wants to look this up, look up chapter 24 of the book of Ezekiel, particularly the 24th verse, and then follow it down to the 27th verse. And what you read there is that God said to Ezekiel, uh, I have made you a sign. Mm. You are a sign for the house of Israel. He had told, he had told Ezekiel in that passage, whose wife had just died, mm. not to mourn for her, because uh, because you can't mourn the way you should. You don't know the depth of what's happened. Mm. But he wasn't really talking about the death of his wife. He was talking about the death of a nation. Mm. They had become idolatrous, and the nation was dying off. And unless God revived it, Israel would be gone. Mm. And 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 Ezekiel's a sign of that. Mm. He's suffering it in his own home, but Israel's going to suffer as a nation. And if you read that text, if anybody here listening to us will go back and read that text and read it carefully, you'll find that that's what it says. Wow. That I'll repeat it. And then... Uh, it's, and it's, let's follow up that next week. This is okay. good because we're we are at the at the um, end of the second half hour, and as always, it's gone really fast. And I hope you join us next week as we go further into Ezekiel and um, and in that period that 
early period of ministry of my dad's ministry and and talk about that in depth and i just want to thank you for joining us and please visit us at pastorboylan.com where you can find out more about what we do and find out more about the show and have a great week thank you dad for joining us here at signpost yeah thanks for being here and thanks for listening in General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.